Welcome to the Divorced and Done podcast. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by my friend and colleague, Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers focused on giving you the information necessary to move through the divorce process quickly and efficiently to maximize benefit to you and your family without financially or emotionally bankrupting yourselves. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Enjoy the show. Episode 5 of Divorced and Done, we're following along our path of what you need to do to move your divorce forward in a quick and efficient manner, considering property and debt. I'm Rob Woodward, here with Darren Schmidt. Darren, how are you? Amazing. We're coming out of the last weekend here, uh, which was the Juno Awards, the 50th Annual Juno Awards, Canada's National Music Celebration. The reason I bring that up is because Episode 5 feels like we've been doing this a long time running, which is, of course, uh, a great song uh, performed and written by the tragically hip Canada's national treasure rock music artist. Uh, and unfortunately, we lost lead singer Gord Downey a few years ago, but they were performing at the Juno Awards with Leslie Feist uh, performing a song, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken, uh, with Feist as lead singer. So I would encourage all listeners to go check that out. Fantastic performance by The Tragically Hip. If you're not familiar with The Tragically Hip, go check them out and uh, check out that performance. Check out the song Long Time Running from their 1991 album as well. Uh, just, just some great music from The Tragically Hip. So I'm doing good. Uh, we've had some great reach out from or outreach from our listeners uh, on our social media platforms uh, on LinkedIn, Darren Schmidt based out of Lumbee, Robert Woodward based out of Calgary and on our TikTok feeds. Uh, I'm at family law underscore Darren Schmidt. You're at Robert underscore Woodward. We've been putting out uh, more content on those platforms, which has been great. Um, and of course, as always, we are asking for your questions to be submitted to us by our Gmail account, uh, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Send us your questions and you know what? We'll answer them. Fantastic. Thank you, Darren. So we're taking a little bit of a detour from the structured approach when we were talking about, um, the issues you need to deal with to move your divorce forward. This episode was originally going to be about spousal support, but we're saving that for the end, turning our attention to property and debt. After you've determined you're separate and apart, where your children are going to be, maybe some support has started coming in terms of child support. The first thing that people really think about and what we ask people to cover when they come and meet with us are what do you have? And property is a very broad topic includes assets and debts. So not only things with positive value, but things with negative value. And uh, Darren, do you want to touch on our legislative regime in Canada, uh, how we deal with property generally? Yeah, so it is different by province. So the reason for that is because of our constitution. So in 1867, of course, the British North America Act came into force. That was repatriated in 1982 under now our Constitution Act. Section 92 of that piece of legislation assigns legislative authority or 
in other words, exclusive powers to make laws to the provinces. And one of the many items that is assigned to the provinces to make uh, laws respecting is property and civil rights. So in, encapsulated within the phrase property under Section 92 includes the right of provinces to make uh, legislation pertaining to how folks going through a divorce, if you're married, or a common law separation, how they deal with their property and debt division. So each province, because of the Constitution, has separate pieces of legislation dealing with how uh, folks going through common law separations or divorces, how, how they deal with their property and debt division. So in short, because of our constitution, each province has different laws respecting property and debt division, but they're not all vastly different, but there is a different statute for each province. And for the purposes of today, even though you're in BC, I'm in Alberta, I know we have a lot of listeners in Ontario and other parts of the country. We're not necessarily going to go really granular in each province's statutory regime. That's not what we're here to do. But we're just going to talk about property uh, from 30,000 feet. And as you've addressed, all provinces in Canada, even in Quebec, have legislation that starts with the presumption that all property is divided equally. Uh, and I note uh, for our listeners, Darren and I, of course, as you may know, we attended law school together and he always wrote the best notes and came up with the best material in our study group. And for the purposes of today, he again came up with uh, the outline for this episode. So, Darren, you put in here a great note. Why not a system that allows one spouse to keep everything? Yeah, so... As you said, Rob, all provinces have legislation uh, and all, all, the, all those pieces of legislation, statutes, they presume an equal division of property uh, upon a separation or divorce, upon a breakdown of a, a relationship. So they presume, the presumption is, an equal division of property and debt, as you say. So, I, I mean, why is that the presumption? Um well, we can imagine why, you know, by, by the question you've asked, what, what sort of system would we have in each province in this country if there was a law that said, well, all property should go to the husband or the wife or um, other nuances you could probably imagine as to what would be a different approach other than equal division. And I think, I think the starting point here is just marriage or common law relationships akin to marriage, they're a joint endeavor. And um, our legislatures across Canada view that uh, with a degree of seriousness. In other words, they're saying, well, if if you're in a marriage or in a, in a relationship akin to marriage, we should presume that you're going to divide all your property equally because it's a joint endeavor. And to what do have something. you built together? Yes, of course. And so we we start with that presumption, and we, we start with it from that premise. And even though we're looking at this through the lens primarily of married individuals getting divorced, uh, our common law, as it's colloquially known across the country, uh, for individuals that are not married but are in the marriage-like relationship, you're living together, holding yourselves out together as a couple. Increasingly across the country, it used to be only if you were married were you able to have access to our matrimonial property legislation that provides for 
a general presumption of equal division of property. But now I believe most provinces in the country uh, now have family property legislation that extend those same rules that used to only be for married couples now to those individuals that are common law. So after you've been in those relationships for a few years, usually it extends to everybody. Right. So the definition of what is a common law spouse will vary by your province, whatever province you're in. We'll, we'll certainly do an episode in the future on the the distinction there of what is a common law spouse of some sort. But you're right. For the purpose of today, if you're married or not married, but you're in a common law relationship, laws relating to property and debt division, they all apply to you uniformly. There's no magic to being married or not married as long as you're in as a common law legis- As that BC legislation says, in a marriage-like relationship. And I think for today, that's probably sufficient for our purposes. Right. So let's talk, Rob, about disclosure. So it, once the relationship's broken down, uh, be it you're married, not married, but in a common law relationship, the, the relationship's broken down. I mean, the starting point here is is disclosure, full disclosure. I know you are... A stickler when you're doing things like uh, separation agreements, et cetera, for full disclosure, but maybe talk a little bit about the disclosure process uh, early on in the separation process. So the disclosure process is foundational to building agreements. If we don't know what both of you and the other person have, there's no way we can really say how we're going to split up what there is. So as a first step, and we talk about this in the first consult, a disclosure package usually is your last three years tax returns, uh, last three years notices of assessment, plus six months to a year of any financial instruments that you have, whether in your name alone or with your spouse's name on them or anyone else's name if your name is on them, meaning any bank statements, credit card statements, uh, investment statements, RRSPs, TFSAs, any financial instruments, businesses, and there can be heightened disclosure obligations if you own your own business uh, as a starting point. And then usually, uh, varying from province to province, you'll have some sort of financial disclosure statement that is a cover sheet to all of that material that briefly outlines what there is in terms of assets and in terms of debts. And you will swear that Uh, with a commissioner for oaths or a notary to say, I swear under oath that this is all that I have. There's nothing more, nothing less. Uh, This is everything. And that's a really good starting point to exchange with the other lawyer. And usually pretty quickly, depending on whatever sort of divorce lawyer you're talking with, you can make some pretty broad strokes in determining who's going to take what or how things might be divided. All right. So, Disclosures, as you say, foundational, it's got to be done right at the start. You're swearing or affirming the contents of that disclosure are true. So if you hide anything and it's discovered later, you will be probably in some hot water. So you got to disclose it. And that helps us as lawyers uh, figure out what are all the pieces to to the puzzle. So thinking about what are the pieces to the puzzle, I guess we have to figure out or discuss what is property or debt that is subject to the to division as you're going through a separation process. So I've categorized this in three big ways. Uh, The first is very simple. We start with anything owned jointly by both spouses. Clearly, this is going to be subject to division. The classic example is a house. 
that both parties may own jointly in their names. There's different types of joint ownership depending on what province you're in. But if you both own the house, uh, clearly that's going to be subject to division. You both own it. You could also have joint bank accounts or joint financial instruments as well. So those are things that are clearly going to be subject to division. The next thing you're going to want to think about, point two, is think about anything acquired by either spouse during the relationship. So anything acquired individually by either spouse, that is that is treated as divisible as well. So just because maybe you bought it during your marriage and own it in your name alone doesn't mean it's only yours. If it's acquired through the course of the relationship, it is probably subject to division. And thirdly, uh, we need to think about anything that was owned prior to the relationship that still exists. The increase in value of that property is going to be subject to division. So if you have a a really nice painting or a collectible of some sort, and it's worth, uh, I don't know, say $100,000 at the start of the relationship. And at the end of the relationship, when the relationship ends, it's worth $200,000. It's gone up $100,000 in value. The $100,000 increase in value of that asset is subject to division. So those three big categories, anything jointly owned, anything acquired by either of you during the relationship, or the increase in value of anything that was owned prior to the relationship, that's all stuff that's probably subject to division. Very simply, there's nuances there, but those are the three big categories. The next thing we got to think about is what isn't property or what is exempt. So um, there's there's a few examples here. Rob, do you want to talk about the exemptions that we typically think about? Yeah, there's very few items that are actually exempt, particularly if you've been married for a long time. Uh, you likely have more. Most of your assets were acquired during the time you were married. So things that could be exempt, and again, these are technical pieces, but it's stuff that you owned prior to your relationship. And much like Darren's example of that $100,000 painting, if you purchased it prior to your relationship, that principal value at the start of the relationship may be exempt, but not the growth on that property during your relationship. Stuff acquired after your separation, um, after your relationship has ended, if you've purchased things after the fact. But again, that's not absolutely clear because if you purchase things while you're still married but separated, depending on how that asset was acquired, if you purchase that new asset with exclusively your own money or money from exempt property, it may be absolutely exempt, it may not be. Inheritance, if you've inherited something exclusively to you, usually is exempt, unless, of course, for example, you've received some money, someone died, you put that into kitchen renovations. It may lose the benefit of being exempt because it was incorporated into something. And that comes back to how traceable it is, unless you put that item into joint names. Uh, lawsuit settlements, including personal injury damages, may also be exempt. Uh, there's a few other listed here, Darren. Do you want to talk about those pieces? Yeah, so gifts from a third party. So if you receive a gift from a third party and it's intended to be a gift to you individually, as long as you keep that gift, say it's a thing, that's pretty easy, then you know, you're just going to take it and you know put it on a shelf or something or whatever it is. Um, that's your thing. Uh, if it's money and it goes into a bank account, then we have to examine what you do with the money. So if you took the money, you put it into your own individual bank account, 
you never took any of that money and used it for the kitchen renos or anything that was sort of meant for the broader family, then it's exempt and it remains exempt. Uh, property held in a trust. This is another, another example. Property held in a trust that was not contributed to by that spouse during the relationship. So if you're a beneficiary of a trust of some sort, uh, many of us are not a beneficiary of a trust, but if you're the beneficiary of a trust, um, the, the trust property, be it money or whatever, is probably exempt. And then the, the last category we want to think about for exempt property is proceeds of sale of exempt property. So back to the painting example, we keep coming back to this. You sell the painting during the relationship, say instead of it going up to 200,000, you sold it when it was worth 150,000. The $100,000 principal value from when the relationship started, that's exempt. The $50,000 increase in value, that's divisible 50-50. So your ex would have a claim to 25,000 of that. So those are, um, those are kind of the classic exemptions. There will be nuances depending on whatever province you live in. Uh, so this is not a strict gospel of all the exemptions. There's some categories of things as well that um, we may not think of as property. They don't come instantly to mind. When we think of property, we think of real property. We think of bank accounts. We think of investments. Um, but there's lots of stuff as well that we should be turning our mind to. And your disclosure uh, requirements in your province will likely have you turn your mind to as well. These are things like pensions, private pension plans. Those are subject to division. Rob, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, going about getting private pensions valued and all that, not in, in tremendous detail, but I know you're, you have some experience in that regard. Pensions are a sticky issue because there's two kinds of pensions. Uh, defined benefit that defines the benefit you'll receive when you retire and defined contribution that defines what you put in, but the benefit may be different in the future. Uh, pensions, because they're built up over a long period of time, you'll get annual or sometimes less than annual statements about the value of your pension. But when we're splitting it up, usually you will need an accountant um, or an actuarial firm to value that pension for the purposes of divorce and division proce uh, divorce proceedings. So it's a complex piece. And of all the things we deal with, usually pensions are the one asset or, or businesses where we're sending people out to get independent valuations because whatever's on the page may not actually be the value in reality. Yeah, not to go down the pension rabbit hole here, but I mean, if it's a public pension plan of, of some kind, um, you can typically, even if you're not the pensioner, you're the other spouse, you can send a request as part of the divorce or separation process directly to that pension provider for a calculation. Um, and that's a, that's a somewhat technical process, but it's um, something that your lawyer can help you with. But a huge caveat on that, as you just said, if anyone's requesting that account statement from their pension plan administrator, there can be rules around how often those pension statements will be produced. It may, for example, on breakdown of marriage, they may only produce one for you once. So make sure you talk to a lawyer first, determine what dates you want to put on there for the times when you start the pension accrual to the uh, for joint accrual. 
uh, where we're valuing it for both of you, the amount that's going to be divided, and what period that ends. So it's a really technical question. Take that to a lawyer. Take it to an accountant. Other types of stuff you may not think of as property, but it is, is Canada Pension Plan credits. So that is just the default on that is that you can, as part of your separation, make a request to the government to uh, claim half of your spouse's CPP credits for the duration of their relationship. And likewise, your spouse can do that uh, to you. Um, only if you opt out by agreement in writing or court order will neither of you be allowed to do that. Uh, another form of assets, a fairly recent form of uh, asset, um, is cryptocurrency. So, um, you know, if you have cryptocurrency or you think your ex has cryptocurrency, they're going to have to disclose that in their disclosure statement. Of course, there's going to be uh, unique issues around valuation of that to some extent and whether or not they've disclosed all of their cryptocurrency. That's a novel issue that probably a lot of divorce lawyers are facing. It hasn't come up in my practice yet. Um, Another category is shares in privately held businesses. So just because the business may have a bunch of assets, that's not actually what you're dividing because that's owned by the business. It's the your your ex's shares in that privately held business that are subject to division. And that's, of course, as you say, Rob, one instance where you're probably going to want some assistance from a third party, be it a full-blown um, evaluation from a valuator uh, as to what those shares are worth or some other lesser form of expert opinion on what are those shares actually valued at. But that's the key there is figuring out what those values of the shares are. Absolutely, because most Canadian businesses are closely held, meaning not publicly listed companies like Google or Amazon, but are usually just a couple people or maybe even just the couple or one individual going through the divorce are the participants in that company. And when those share certificates were initially issued, however many years ago, whenever the business first was incorporated, they may, for example, only say value of $1, which may not be their actual value in effect when looking at the company. No. So you're going to have to clearly look at the financial statements. You're going to have your lawyer look at it, but, um, you know, if your ex has shares in a closely held, privately held business, there may be other people that are not involved in the divorce proceedings that also have shares in that business. You know, your ex may have to come up with a shareholder's loan of, of sorts or some other financing to pay you out your half value of those shares in order for them to keep their shares. So as to not literally divide the shares held by that party, because um, it's unlikely the other shareholders in the business are going to want to have you now as a shareholder uh, in the business. That's That can be very complex. This can complex. get complex pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other category is pets. Rob, do you want to talk about pets as a thing of pro property thing? Well, it's the last one we put on here that said uh, you may not think of, but it's property. It's because you had a great TikTok on this the other day. Um, pets and so many people, when we first talk about this issue, think of pets as an extension of their family, almost like children. Uh, and you can theoretically do a parenting schedule for a pet or treat a pet as something that will be exchanged back and forth. But at the end of the day, if you don't get agreement on that piece and you're fighting about what's going to happen to a pet, unlike children, it's not the best interest of the pet, a pet's property. Uh, and you're going to have to deal with it along with all of your other assets. Totally. Pets are not kids, so we don't use principles of custody of battling about them in court. I've never had a pet battle in court yet, but others have. Uh, you can check out my TikTok for a recent 
video on a case out of Ontario about people fighting about pets and the principles of law the court applied in that case. So, okay, we've talked about uh, sort of what is property, what is exempt. Uh, we've talked about the principle amongst all provinces and all the statutes in Canada that there's a presumption of equal division of property and debts. But there is, of course, the opportunity for either or both spouses going through a separation to ask for an unequal division of fa family property or family debt, matrimonial property, matrimonial debt, however it's um, stated in your province. So um, the question then turns to, well, why, why would we unequally divide property? So I'll talk a little bit about BC's Family Law Act, because I practice here in BC. Section 95 of our uh, Family Law Act allows one of the spouses to, to basically ask the court, if it goes to a, a trial, to unequally divide property if to divide property equally would result in significant unfairness to that spouse. Um, that comes up um, frequently in instances where one spouse has, has said they've made significant contributions to an item of property, particularly maybe real property. They've, they've maintained all the upkeep of the property. They've contributed financially more to the property in terms of maintenance and things like that. And so then to say, well, to divide the house, say net sale proceeds, if it's sold equally would be unfair because I'm the one that tended to the garden and maintained the house and, and things like that. That's one of many examples that uh, a person could argue in terms of unequal division. Just keep in mind, um, significant unfairness as it's fashioned here in BC is a high hurdle. So the person asking the court to make an unequal division of property or debt bears the onus to show significant unfairness. It's not just unfairness, it must be significant unfairness. So um, it is it is a high hurdle. I know in uh, Alberta, um, under the Matrimonial Property Act, Rob, there's some opportunity for folks to ask for unequal division there. Do you want to talk about that? Very briefly, similar to significant unfairness in BC, uh, Section 8 factors are basically looking at a property division regime and saying, are we being equitable? Which for all those same reasons, if someone contributed significantly to one piece of property and someone else did not, and they wouldn't necessarily be well compensated in an equal division of all assets. For example, someone maintained most everything, the other partner did not, uh, and if dividing would put someone at a significant windfall, so to speak, there may be reasons to reapportion the property adjustment um, so that it more equitably compensates for who brought what into the relationship, who did what, instead of just taking a knife right down the middle. Some great examples, and you've highlighted these here, um, where we would trigger probably both significant unfairness in BC and equitable reasons in Alberta. One spouse incurred secret debts or one spouse dissipated assets. And the best instances we see of that are often people with gambling addictions or secret spending habits, racking up extreme debts behind the other spouse's back. And to say, sorry, I blew all these assets during our marriage, but I still want half the house. Is that fair? And those are questions that if they can't be resolved easily, will likely end up at trial. All right. So that is a whirlwind tour 
of property and debt division in Canada. Um, I mean, we spend a large portion of our practices dealing with this to cover it all in, you know, 25 minutes. That's uh, it's a very broad overview. We'll, we'll dive deeper into this as things move along. Um, but I think that covers it. So I think it's that special time. It's our favorite time. <laughs> it's time for listener mail, which means it's time for the special sound effect. Oh, baby. It gets, it gets louder every time. Oh, does it ever? It's because our, uh, our zest for listener questions gets greater every time. Uh, that's right. That's listener mail cowbell. And your ears will be treated to that sound each week as we transition from the body of the episode to listener questions. You can submit your listener questions to us and we will answer them. You can submit them to our Gmail account, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. We have a few listener questions uh, this week. So uh, the first one I wanted to turn to was the, the listener asking this says she's drawn up a separation agreement with her and her ex. Looks like they've drawn it up without the assistance of a lawyer, which is fine. Um, but they say it states in the agreement that he would pay for her vehicle and that she would take over the vehicle, um, the, the value of it in lieu of child support or spousal support. And she's now said, well, I, I don't really want to keep the vehicle and I want to get my own vehicle instead. And she says, I'm wondering if this will be an issue. Um, basically, I've taken a piece of property, matrimonial family property, and I've accepted that. And we've sort of treated that as payment in lieu of child support and spousal support. So, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? I am concerned um, with the notion of trading property for child support. As we discussed in our child support episode, child support is the right of the child to pay for those essentials for children, for shelter, for food, uh, for being well cared for. And the notion of trading a vehicle, whatever it may be in this situation, a depreciating asset uh, for the support of your child is likely not okay. Uh, the listener doesn't go into too much detail. And the one situation where it might be okay is if that vehicle was potentially traded off against child support arrears. Uh, but then again, depending on how, to what extent those arrears uh, are there or not, and to the value of what this vehicle means to uh, our listener or not, uh, it's potentially concerning. My view really simply, child supports the right of the child. It should be paid in cash not in vehicles or in a more recent TikTok that you set up gift cards. So yeah, the interesting point you raised there. So the, the gifting of the vehicle or transfer of the vehicle into her name, it, it might be acceptable for child support arrears, uh, or retroactive child support that may be owing, but probably not a good thing for a prospective child support. What, just, I'm just curious, what, why do you see it as okay for retro but not prospective child support as an offset? Depending on what their property division may look like, um, looking at what property was there, what debts may be there, if all of those things are generally equal and giving the listener this vehicle would result in a net positive 
to uh, the listener so that she is up over her ex, um, she would then be in a position of having to compensate for that vehicle. If there are some nominal child support arrears there, I'm less concerned um, to balance that property table, potentially doing that. But if there are children going without, if they don't have clothes, if they're not eating, that's where a court's going to be concerned and is going to intervene and remind everybody, no, child support's the right of the child. This needs to be paid in cash so that children have a real benefit of that child support and not just an in-kind benefit of whatever that vehicle may mean to this person's children. Yeah, totally. I agree. And on the retro piece, um, I think courts generally have more flexibility in assessing retroactive child support. Um, so I, I totally agree with your assessment. That's a bang on, which leads into the second listener question we're going to address this week, which is about retroactive child support. Um, she says her husband and her went to court last year and ended up with a shared custody arrangement of their son or what we now call shared parenting. Looks like they're on a 14 day and 14 day schedule. So he has the child 14 days. She has the child 14 days. Um, the child is now seven years old. Um, looks like there's some child support arrears going on here. Uh, and there's the issue of prospective child support as well. She's on mater maternity leave, uh, with another child and he works, um, as a, as a tradesperson. And so, uh, the, the question quite simply from the listener at the end here is I was wondering if it's possible to claim for retroactive child support. So, uh, Rob, is it possible? In this situation, what I'm hearing is she's on maternity leave, so I'm assuming not earning an income right now, and he's working and earning that income. So absolutely, I would be looking for those uh, retroactive or arrears of child support and the go-forward child support, despite whatever agreement you've come to on parenting. It's great that you're working toward shared parenting and to be commended to do that, particularly if you've done that by agreement and built a parenting arrangement that works for both of you. Congratulations. That's the hardest thing we deal with. So we've talked about in previous episodes, but just because you work that piece out now doesn't mean you necessarily walk away from child support. Your child is seven if you as mom were the primary parent previously and dad wasn't paying child support uh, in years prior, I'd be very interested in going after those arrears because again, they're the right of the child, not the right of the parent. Yeah. So for retroactive child support, uh, our, our Supreme Court has weighed in on this in the past in a decision called DBS. I, I've done a TikTok about this case. You can check that out on my feed. But the principle here is there's a soft limitation period, not a hard limitation period, but a soft one of, of three years in the past. You can you can ask for retroactive child support. You can go back further than that. But if you're going back further than that, the court is going to want to examine closely why you've delayed in bringing that application, uh, extending it beyond three years. And they're going to want to look at the prejudice that would arise to the parent now being asked to pay child support more than three years in the past, but those hurdles are not insurmountable. And, and, um, the court is still going to start from the presumption. If a court is asked to make the decision, it's going to start from the presumption that child support, like you say, Rob is the right of the child and non-payment of it, even for some years, doesn't mean there's been a waiver of it. Um, it is still the right of the child to have the same economic means that that child would have enjoyed if their mom and dad had stayed together because that child did not choose uh, his or her mom and dad to separate mom and or dad 
made that choice. The child did not, the child should not suffer economically um, because of that. So bingo. Yeah, bingo. Are those our listener questions for this week? They are. And so, uh, like I say, you can submit your questions to us, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. This is Divorced and Done. Thank you for being with us. Yeah.